If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 618. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll, and purchase one or 20 of my courses there. That helps support this podcast and keep it free of charge. You can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Throw a few pennies my way. You can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. That's a great way to expand the base and, of course, get people on board with the theme. Now, all that said, I've got a three-part podcast this week based on one tweet. So what I'm going to do is talk about the tweet today and one response to it. And then I'm going to talk about another response to it tomorrow and a primary document on Thursday that goes with the, with the piece I'll talk about tomorrow. So this all has to do with secession. It's all a think locally, act locally week here. We talked about Lincoln yesterday. And uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about Lincoln today because the tweet actually comes from Michael Beachlaw. So if you don't know who he is, he is a leftist historian. He's um, awful. But anyways, he tweeted out on April 9th, some people on Twitter are now saying that in light of what we now know, Lincoln should have simply allowed the South to secede in 1861. Anyone wish to react to this? It was retweeted as of this point 866 times with over 10,000 likes. Let me click on it here to see what we got. 941 retweets and 11,000 likes, 492 quote tweets. So this is a big, big tweet, right? It had a lot of traction. And of course, if you read the, <laughs> the, the, the comments on it, it's embarrassingly bad. But it, of course, in, in, involved responses to that from people that have blogs and other things. And one of those blogs that responded was Kevin Levine's blog, Civil War Memory. Now, if you last uh, a couple weeks ago or last week, it was two weeks ago, I had a, um, a podcast on Kevin Levine's book on black Confederates. And um, I, I don't even know how he could get up from that one. But uh, he has his little blog, his Substack blog. And so every now and then he posts on that. And the only reason I found this is because the person I'll talk about tomorrow linked back to it that she read this. And of course, she's also a pretty embarrassing historian, but I'll talk about her post tomorrow and then a, a primary document she actually linked to in that. So Levine wants to weigh in on this, right? And it's a bunch of righteous cause mythology nonsense. And I'm going to talk about what he says here that's just embarrassingly bad and laughable. So let me get to that. So he says, Yesterday I came across this tweet from historian Michael Beachloss. 
There are a number of ways one could react to people who insist that, quote, Lincoln should have simply allowed the South to secede in 1861. First, we could push back against the wording of the question itself. Not all of the southern states seceded between December 1860 and May 1861. The slaveholding border states of Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware remained in the Union throughout the war. Now, let me stop there. So he's saying we can push back against this because not all the southern states seceded by May 1861. Now, Missouri did. So did Kentucky, not by 18, May 1861, but both states seceded, right? They had, they had pro-Confederate governments. You had, I mean, if you want to talk about a real civil war, you had it in Missouri and you had it in Kentucky, what about Maryland? Why didn't Maryland secede before May of 1861? Pretty simple explanation, because Maryland was occupied by the United States Army, right? And they arrested all the pro-secession members of the state legislature, so they couldn't meet to secede from the Union. So that's the only reason Maryland didn't secede from the Union, or it would have, right? Maryland was going to go out. Maryland was going to join the Confederacy. The best book about this is entitled... Uh, the South's First Casualty. It's by Bart Talbert. Now, it's very hard to find a copy of it, but it's really good, and he makes the case convincingly that Maryland was going to leave. Maryland would have left the Union if it wasn't for Lincoln's heavy-handed policies and tactics. And, of course, the governor of Maryland, Thomas Hicks, who was uh, duplicitous, to say the least. But that's why Maryland didn't go. What about Delaware? Why didn't Delaware leave the Union? Well, Delaware couldn't really do it by itself now, could it? If Maryland didn't leave because it was coerced to stay in, Delaware couldn't. However, the governor of Delaware was certainly pro-secession. The entire congressional delegation was pro-secession. Most importantly, James Byard, who wrote to his son, hey, we're going to go with the South if there's a break. And uh, the other senator um, was certainly... Uh, certainly pro-secession, at least to an extent that he was open to maybe even a Western Confederacy. So there was, now Now I say this, the, uh, the member of the House, um, uh, uh, Fisher, was actually pro-Union, pro-Lincoln, but uh, the, member the, the, the um, member of the House before that wasn't. So Fisher was pro-Lincoln, pro-Union, but the only reason Delaware... Uh, seemed to be pro-Union was because of, again, military occupation. They had troops at polling places. This, is, uh, this was a situation, you know, Kevin Levin saying, or Levine is saying, we're going to get these people. We're going to show them. We could push back. Against what, Levine? You really don't know what you're talking about. Then he says, we could point out that the South almost always means the white South. It ignores roughly half the population of the slave-holding states in 1860-61. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, under that logic, well, then when we say the Union, do we ignore half the Union that really didn't want to be in favor of the Republican war policy? Because Lincoln only got 55% of the vote in 1864, and probably a good portion of that was fraudulent. So are we going to ignore half the population that didn't want the war in the North? I mean, but you seem to think it's... You know, we're, we, we don't do that. The North is pro-Union. Everybody's pro-Union because he, he kind of makes this point a little bit later on. I'll get to that. But of course, so well, the, white, the black Southern population wasn't in favor of the war. I mean, that's not entirely true, as I pointed out when I ripped apart his book. But okay, 
So yeah, there were people in the South that weren't in favor of going to war or secession. Uh, more importantly, secession. And yes, there were pro-union people. Then, then he says, if we're really on our A-game, we can point to the large pockets of unionism throughout the South. Again, are we going to point to the large pockets of anti-Republican sentiment throughout the North? The fire in the rear, as Lincoln called it, that we're throwing people in jail. 30,000 people at least thrown in jail because they oppose the war. I mean, come on. So he's not really on his A game. He's on his F game. This guy is so, he's so stupid, he can't get out of his own way. All right, so let's get to the next part. My larger problem is in failing to turn the question into an opportunity to learn a little history. Most people who speculate, speculate about what Lincoln should have done have no real understanding of why he did what he did. More to the point, few people have any sense of what the Union meant to the loyal citizenry of the United States in 1860-61. So let me break this paragraph down. Most people who speculate about what Lincoln should have done have no real understanding of why he did what he did. Oh, so why is that? Levine, why did he do what he did? Well, I mean, he made it pretty clear in his inaugural address. What about my tariff? We're going to enforce the laws. We're going to collect. And why did he do what he did? Why did he do what he did? Because he wanted to make sure the Republican Party remained intact. If Lincoln allows the South to go, he's a one-term president. And maybe not even that. Because, well, I mean, maybe there's a possibility the guy is impeached. Who knows? He only got... 39.6 of the popular vote in 1860. He's not a majority president. The Republican Party then would be teetering. It wouldn't theoretically have a platform anymore. That would be gone. So what's going to happen to Abraham Lincoln? So why did he do what he did? Well, to save his party. That's why he did what he did. So then Levine says, we have, a, we have a very clear picture of what Union meant to Lincoln and why he didn't simply allow the southern states to destroy the nation. Well, the southern states weren't destroying the nation. They were leaving the Union. The nation theoretically still existed. Didn't have a nation anyways. A federal republic. The federal republic of the United States still existed without seven states. Because you see, what Levine doesn't point out is that there were a number of states that didn't leave in the initial wave of secession, including Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee. There were states that did not leave before April of 1861 because they, weren't, they didn't think it was the right thing to do. So Lincoln could have saved the Union. He could have saved the Union without seven states. It still would have been the Union. The Union would not have ceased to exist. You still had a military, you still had banking houses, you still had a government, all those things. Court system, all that remained intact. The nation wasn't destroyed. This is the most idiotic argument I've heard, and I, I already talked about this in a previous podcast, but this is what these people are trying to say. It was going to destroy the nation. The nation would cease to exist. No, it wouldn't. In fact, again, I'll use James Byrd. James Byrd pointed this out. What are you talking about? We still got a government. We still have a military. We still have banks. All this stuff. It still exists. The nation's not gone. It still exists. So then he says, of course, we have a very clear picture of what Union meant to Lincoln and why he didn't simply allow the southern states to destroy the nation. You could wade through his careful examination of the creation and expansion of the nation and the relationship between the states and the federal government in his February 27, 1860 address at Cooper Union Institute in New York City. So now he's going to quote Lincoln. And I'm going to say this. 
uh, this year, I'm going to have a McClanahan Academy course on Lincoln, okay? And it's going to go through his speeches. And I will discuss Cooper Union because it's one of those speeches that uh, everyone cites, all right? So it's going to be speeches that Lincoln made that have currency because of all the Lincoln, quote-unquote, scholars that run around out there. What I will say about this, it is 1860 word salad. It doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. Because if you look at it, and I'm going to read through it very quickly, if you look at it, there's nothing really here. He says, you say we are sectional. We deny it. That makes an issue. And the burden of proof is upon you. You produce your proof. And what is it? Why, that our party has no existence in your section. Gets no votes in your section. The fact is substantially true. But it does, but does it prove the issue? If it does, then in case we should, without change of principle, begin to get votes in your section, we thereby cease to be sectional. Let me... You cannot escape this conclusion. So he says, you say we're sectional because we don't have anybody there. But once we do, then we're not sectional because we have people there. I mean, this is just this is stupid. Okay. But you still are sectional. Even if you got a vote there or five votes there, you're still a sectional party. Dorp. I mean, this is, this is Lincoln with word salad meaning nothing. This is Kamala Harris of 1860. If you are, you will probably soon find that we have ceased to be sectional for we shall get votes in your section this very year. Well, okay. You will then begin to discover, as the truth plainly is, that your proof does not touch the issue. The fact that we get no votes in your section is a fact of your making and not of ours. Again, so if you say we're sectional, but we give a vote, then we're not sectional, so then we're not sectional, so then the Republican Party is what it is. And if there be fault in this fact, that fault is primarily yours. It remains until you show that we repel you by some wrong principle or practice. So if we repel you by any wrong principle or practice, the fault is ours. But this brings us to where you ought to have started, to a discussion of the right or wrong of our principle. So he's saying, well, because you're, you're, what Lincoln is essentially doing, you're deflecting the issue by saying we're a sectional party, but let's talk about the principles or the policies. And if you say we wrong you, then we wrong you. But if we don't, then we don't. So let's talk about this. And if we don't talk about it, then we don't talk about it. And then we'll just talk about being sectional. Again, it's word salad. It means nothing, Right? If our principle put in practice would wrong your section for the benefit of ours or for any other object, then our principle and we with it are sectional and are justly opposed and denounced as such. Meet us then on the question of whether our principle put in practice would wrong your section. So if our principles are sectional, then we're sectional. But if you talk about it and we're not, then we're not. And if we get a vote, then we're not. But if we do, then we are. I mean, this is just ridiculous, right? So I'm not going to read the rest of this. They finish. Well, I'll say this. Then you really believe that the principle which our fathers who framed the government under which we live thought so clearly right as to adopt it and endorse it again and again upon their official oaths is in fact so clearly wrong as to demand your condemnation without a moment's consideration. But see, Lincoln is deflecting here, right? Because the Union, the Union, a federal republic would allow for sectional differences, but the problem was we had moved to a point where Issues were becoming national in scope that weren't supposed to be national in scope. That was an issue. So, again, Lincoln's deflecting, right? He's deflecting. It's word salad. It's nothing. But Levine thinks this is conclusive proof about what it is. Yeah. There is also his July 4th, 1861 speech in which Lincoln spoke eloquently about the United States as the last best hope of Earth and the importance of maintaining free and fair elections. Well, um... Did this is this is rich, right? Free and fair elections coming from Abraham Lincoln for a couple of reasons. One, the South wasn't prohibiting free and fair elections. In fact, 
the secession conventions were elected by the southern states in crushing majorities through the election process, through the people, through a convention, which is the, the voice of the people. It, it was a very American thing. In fact, in the Alabama secession convention, and then uh, later when there was a discussion of the adoption of the Confederate Constitution, one of the delegates there pointed out, he said, you know, we're doing this wrong because the legislatures are doing this. We need to put this to a convention. Call a convention for this process. And so it's interesting, even in the South, there was some discussion about how this would work because they were interested in this very thing of free and fair elections. In fact, if Lincoln wants to wax eloquently about government of the people, by the people, and for the people, then his government was not that in the South at all. And of course, I say it's rich that Lincoln would even talk about this, seeing that the Republican Party did not conduct free and fair elections during the war. I'll just use Delaware as an example again. If you have to vote through a line of soldiers with fixed bayonets, is that a free and fair election? If you have to announce that you're a Democrat and voting Democrat and they pull your ballot out of the box and replace it with a Republican ballot, is that a free and fair election? If you've got postmasters appointed by Republicans searching the mail and hiding mail and throwing mail in the trash that is pro-Democrat, is that a free and fair election? That's what I want to know. But of course, Levine doesn't care about that because it's Lincoln. So Lincoln says, this is essentially a people's contest on the side of the Union is a struggle for maintaining in the world that form and substance of government whose leading object is to elevate the condition of men, to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, to afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life, yielding to Partial and temporary departures from necessity. This is the leading object of the government for whose existence we contend. Again, lofty nonsense that means nothing. Because they really didn't contend for that. Our popular government has been called an experiment. Two points it and our people have already settled. The successful establishing and the successful administering of it. One still remains. The successful maintenance against the formidable internal attempt to overthrow it. The South wasn't trying to overthrow the United States government. They didn't care about that. They wanted their own government. The United States government still existed. Again, Lincoln playing fast and loose with the facts. It is now for them to demonstrate to the world that those who can fairly carry an election can also suppress a rebellion. That ballots are the rightful and peaceful successors of bullets. And that when ballots have fairly and constitutionally decided, there can be no successful appeal back to bullets. There can be no successful appeal except to ballots themselves at succeeding elections. Again, this is all just word salad ridiculousness. Such would be the great lesson of peace, teaching men that what they cannot take by an election, neither can they take it by a war. Teaching all the folly of being the beginners of a war. So they can't take independence because we're not going to let them have it. Would he say this about the founding generation? Because that's, I mean, this is what the British were saying in 1776. So Lincoln is King George III, right? That's it. So then Levine says, but this question isn't just about Lincoln. We also need to know something about why tens of thousands of loyal Americans volunteered in the opening months of the war to help save the Union. Yeah, why is that? Let's ask William Marvel. He links there to... Uh, James McPherson for Cause and Comrades, which is a good book, right? I mean, 
McPherson talks about this. But what McPherson misses is what William Marvel points out, that a lot of guys are signing up because they wanted a paycheck. And it's three square meals. There was a, if you go look on my Twitter account, there was a, a letter that was up for auction um, at an auction house. And it's funny, you read into it, and one of the letters, um, this was a union, you know, from a couple of union soldiers. Hey, come join the army. You want to know why? Because it's fun and you get paid and we get to march around and get meals. Essentially, join the army so you can get a paycheck. This is the case for a lot of people joining the army, as William Marvel has pointed out. So all the patriotic fervor that, uh, that McPherson found, it was there. But what does it actually mean? Uh, so Levine says, Why were young men from states as far away as Wisconsin and Maine, states that were under no immediate military threat and would likely never be, willing to give their lives in this cause? That's a very good question, actually. Why were they willing to do that? Because that's imperialism, <laughs> right? They're, they're going to be left alone here. Why would they be willing to die for what? For the Union? Now, of course, McPherson points out that some of these people really believe they were fighting for the Founding Fathers. And yeah, I mean, that's true. They believed in the Union. So then he says, historian Gary Gallagher is right that few Americans today have any sense of what Union meant to the vast majority of Americans during the Civil War. Not the vast majority. The vast majority is a little... I mean, that's, that's stretching the truth, not just a little bit, a lot. The vast majority maybe a small minority who were able to persuade enough people to go fight. But who are these soldiers a couple of years in? A lot of conscripts who had no choice but to fight for the Union uh, or under penalty of death. Or there were foreigners being lured off the boats and being paid $300 to go do it. That's not the vast majority of Americans. His book, The Union War, is a wonderful place to begin to put the pieces together, but here is how he sums it up. Now, Gary Gallagher is interesting. He wrote The Union War, which is far inferior to his book, The Confederate War, and I think he did it because he was called a neo-Confederate and all kinds of things after writing The Confederate War, because it's pretty clear in that book that, hey, the Confederacy suffered a lot, and these people were pretty heroic. Uh, but the Union War was, I think, his, his just counter to that. Look, I'm really not a neo-Confederate. Here's how pro-Union I am. Now, what he says in this quote, though, is really interesting. He says, Anyone interested in why the mass of Northern people supported crushing the rebellion, even at hideous cost, must come to grips with the crucial fact. Union was key. For many in the loyal states, it had a meaning that extended far beyond the United States. Victory meant keeping aloft the banner of democracy to inspire anyone outside the United States who suffered at the hands of oligarchs. So see, yes, the Republican Party was thinking in international terms. They were the imperialists. It meant affirming the rule of law under the Constitution and punishing slaveholding aristocrats whose selfish actions had compromised the work of the founding generation. And it meant establishing beyond question a northern version of the nation. That part is key. You see, because what Levine misses here, I, I mean, I don't, he, doesn't, he doesn't comment on this, but I don't know if he fully gets it. What Levine is, is saying is that we're having a transformation of the United States. We're not holding on to the Union anymore. We're getting something completely different, a northern version of the nation, of America, of the United States. 
that left control in the hands of ordinary voting citizens who are free to pursue economic success without fear of another disruptive sectional crisis. Now, that again is stretching the truth of what was really happening. Um, you had <clears throat> ordinary is, is a stretch, right? Um, you had a lot of people in the North that were making a tremendous amount of money on this union war. And same thing, I mean, look, each section had its rich, okay? Each section had that. And yeah, there was a lot of people on both sides that didn't have money that fought for both causes. Finding arguably, most importantly, the question of whether Lincoln should have done X or Y treats him as a means to an end. It uproots Lincoln and much of the rest of the population from history itself to help someone make an argument that has very little, if anything, to do with history. Encouraging response to the question above invites sloppy thinking or a sloppy blog post like this. Just read through the responses to Beach Lost Tweet. This was a great opportunity to ask people to step back from the question itself and think about the importance of historical context. It's hard enough to try to figure out what happened and why. What do you think? Well, I think your blog post is pretty ridiculous, but that's why I wanted to focus on it. Now, tomorrow, I'll get to another blog post on the topic, which is equally as bad, but this one was really funny to me. And so Kevin Levine had his say. Hey, there he is. What do you think about it? I, I would probably surmise not very much. But anyways, I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.